Right, hello everyone, hope you're all having fun. Uh, I'm Harry, my talk today is called Normalizing Designs for Better Quality CSS. Um, it's a real mouthful, I'm afraid, not a very catchy title. It's also got a second title of uh, Rationalizing Designs for Better Quality CSS. Um, what the talk's gonna deal with is um, how we as front-end devs and often CSS developers specifically, we spend most of our time building people's PSDs. Uh, we implement designs that we may have not come up with ourselves. And, uh, and this is seen as like quite a big deal, and often too big of a deal for my liking. As front-end developers, we have got far more to do than just build PSDs. We need to think about the quality of a code base, the health of a code base, how maintainable it is, how scalable it is, how fast it might be. Um, us actually building and implementing designs is a tiny, tiny part of a, a much bigger job. Um, and in, in my sort of desire to look after code bases, I kind of see that as, um, not being more important than design, but certainly I spend a lot of my time pushing back on design. For the last few years of my career, I've basically told designers no, and I've told them that a lot. Um, so with that in mind, there's kind of a, a potential third title to this talk, which is why designers hate me. Um, I think after working with designers so closely for so many years, they don't hate me quite as much anymore. But it's a really interesting position to be in when you sort of join a new team as a front-end developer. Um, it's interesting when you try and push back on features for the sake of a code base, or you tell a designer that you're not going to build something because it would impact the code base. Um, it's not necessarily a rude or nasty thing to do, um, but it can often not sit very well with design teams. Um, we've had for the longest time this idea that someone gives you a PSD and you have to build it exactly like it looks. And I'm not sure when that happened, and I don't like that that happened. Um, I don't like the assumption that because someone designed something a certain way, a front-end developer has to build that. It's almost as if we don't get enough of a say a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, my, my last few years of telling designers no has led to interesting scenarios. And over the next sort of 40 minutes, I'm gonna go through some of the process and how I deal with those scenarios, how I educate designers um, and sort of let them know that we can change things for the quality of the code base rather than the design. Uh, what we've got to remember is we don't put designs in front of customers, we put websites in front of them. Um, the website is code that is designed, but it's still code. The user doesn't care about the PSD. Um, they care about how well the website works. So it's an important distinction to make. Websites have to look nice, but they have to be propped up by quality and fast code. Um, I gave this talk in, in Berlin last month at CSSConf, and I, I sort of used this hashtag because because it is such a, an interesting and potentially controversial subject, I want to open up as much conversation as I can. Um, if, you're gonna, if you disagree with me, for example, or, or have different insights or different opinions, I'd really, really like to see them. And the easiest, quickest way to start that is probably on Twitter. Um, some really interesting stuff came out of last month's talk. Um, a lot of front-end developers really agreed and really wanted to do the kind of stuff that I spoke about uh, in their teams, but they were worried about coming across as being a bit negative. Um, a lot of designers said that um, you can go too far and you can sort of squeeze the creativity out of designs by treating it as more of a code base than, than a designed piece. But one really interesting thing that came out of it was um, a lot of designers feel like they're just not getting educated enough by their front-end developers. Um, a lot of the time, and I see this myself, um, a designer will get a PSD and they'll give it to a front-end developer. And the front-end developer will complain to other front-end developers about how bad the PSD is. Very rarely do sort of developers go and try and explain nicely to designers. So there's a lot of bitching and moaning, but going in the wrong direction. 
And I think you can sort of talk politely back in this direction and discuss with the designers more. So these were interesting things that came off the back of this talk last month. So I'd be interested to try and keep that going with you guys and see if there's anything else uh, you could potentially add. Um, so anyone who's heard of anything I've done will probably be because of uh, CSS wizardry. And in the last sort of three years, I've shifted my focus away from doing crazy CSS3 stuff, more towards um, pragmatism and architecture and, and scalability. And I'm at a really interesting point at the moment. I've just quit my job to try and do CSS wizardry stuff full time, so more speaking, uh, workshops, taking the kind of ethos that I've embedded in my day job to other companies. I kind of feel like I've almost made myself redundant at my current place of work because I've kind of done everything for them, so I want to move on and do this for other people. Um, the day job I'm leaving is uh, Sky. I presume most of you will have heard of Sky. Quick show of hands. Cool, so for those who haven't, Sky is a really big media organization in the UK. And it's a fantastic and, well, a gigantic uh, place to work. Um, I work specifically in the betting and gaming arm, so their entertainment and online sort of, um, uh, well, their online entertainment sector. And these sites are huge. Um, these are sites built on code bases that last for years. Um, heavily trafficked sites, uh, sites with tons of engineers. So our engineering team is, is enormous. Uh, I don't know an exact number, but it's certainly pushing 200. Um, that, that includes sort of DevOps and test engineers, software engineers, uh, working on these gigantic sites that keep on being built. Um, these sites are only ever getting bigger. Uh, for example, uh, the first site I worked on when I moved to Sky sort of two and a half, three years ago, There'll be someone in the office today, there'll be a team of people in the office right now working on that exact same code base. Um, these aren't the biggest sites in the world, but they're certainly big enough to require a shift in, in the way we think. Um, and it's been really interesting. So it's a massive engineering team, but I'm the only front-end developer there. We've got a team of really, really awesome designers who are very, very clever, very, very good at problem solving. We've got a team of software engineers who are just stupidly clever. And I kind of sit in the middle. So a lot of my job is spent managing uh, people sort of indirectly. I'm not a manager, but I manage relationships. And, uh, and rationalizing designs is part of that. I need to make sure the designers are kept happy and that we're honoring their sort of um, their, their solutions to, to customer-facing problems. But I also need to make sure the code that I write stays performant or stays manageable. Uh, the software engineers don't want to be working with messy code. So my job has largely been keeping front ends as small as possible, as manageable as possible, as maintainable as possible. Uh, anyone who worked product will know that if you go and work on the same code base day in, day out, you really can't afford for that code base to be messy. You just stop enjoying your job. Uh, you don't want to resent the code base that you work with every day, so it's really important to look after it. One of the simplest things I learned is the best way of keeping a code base maintainable is just to write less of it, keep it as small as possible. And it's kind of obvious when you think about it, the less code there is, the less there is to look after, and the less there is to potentially go wrong with it. Uh, so keeping code bases small is the easiest way of keeping track of them. The easiest way to write less is to just build less, and this is where sort of I come in with my saying no to design features. I'll spend a lot of my time um, discussing actual uh, functionality and, and sort of product, requ product requirements. But, um, most of my job is, is building less front-end stuff. Um, the less I can get away with building, the smaller that code base stays. Um, it's really important that I fire a disclaimer in here at this point, though. Uh, I am not anti-design. Through a lot of the talk, I will talk like I am, you know, it's me versus them. And I also might sound a little patronizing when I refer to a, a, a designer. I'm not sort of looking down on designers at all. Um, it's just an easy way to, to, to word things, but I really want to make sure that you guys know that 
I'm not anti-design. I don't feel like they're a separate entity. And I don't feel like that uh, I need to educate them. Um, and the techniques I'm going to discuss won't work on every site. Um, the kind of sites I'm talking about, I refer to as UI-led websites, uh, products, sites that need to keep hold of a user for hours at a time. Or certainly not, well, things like Facebook, where you can easily lose hours at a time. Um, UI-led websites that are more like products. This, these techniques probably wouldn't work on smaller websites like a photographer's portfolio. Um, so UI-led things, Facebook, Google+, uh, those kind of sites. Um, and you also might just disagree with everything I'm about to say, and that's totally fine. Uh, like I said, we've got the hashtag. I'd really love to see some discussion. Um, some people did just out and out disagree with me last time I gave this talk. Um, but it kind of opened up the whole point of what I try and do is open up discussion and, and discuss ways of improving our workflows. Um, and disagreement is part of that process. Um, another massive part of the process is, is making compromises. Now, whenever anyone hears the word compromise, um, they instantly think bad things. Compromise sounds like a nasty word. Um, but when you actually give it some thought, compromise is, is a really good thing. Compromise is the opposite of selfishness. Compromise is about keeping as many people happy by sort of sacrificing things that you might hold dear, but to allow someone else to get something that they might need. Um, so it's important to have a good relationship with your designers. At Sky, I've got a fantastic, well, personal and professional relationship with the, the design team. We have a massive mutual respect for each other's jobs. Um, and we understand that our jobs are different, so we can't agree on everything. Whereas they might find one thing really important, they can't appreciate that I perhaps think that um, the amount of code I write is that important. So it's about compromising and understanding what other people want and, and uh, discussions and, and collaboration. Uh, it's important that you discuss everything. Um, I will say no to designers, but I will let them know that I am saying no. I won't just make a decision to not build something. Uh, this is important for two reasons. Um, discussing things, make sure that people don't think you're being a dick. At least people know why you're doing something. You didn't just do it behind their back and not let them know. Um, but the second and more important thing is it can kind of allow them to see where you're coming from. Uh, and they can start to preempt the kind of things that you would see as a sticking point. Uh, I've got designers now who, who will avoid situations entirely because we've had a discussion previously. And they now understand how something might be problematic. Another really important part of my process is collaboration. Um, we still do have this very um, this rigid sort of PSD to development to sort of um, engineering. Uh, and it is, it's a problem, I think, with large organizations. Large organizations are much slower moving. It's harder to adopt a full-on design in the browser sort of strategy. Um, so what we do is we'll, we'll get something. A designer will have an idea, and they'll come to me, and we'll sort of hack on it together in the browser. Dan Mal, Dan Man, Dan Mal, sorry, um, referred to this as deciding in the browser. And I think that's a really nice term. Uh, a PSD can't tell you how fast something might be. It can't tell you how something might feel on a touch device. So uh, collaborating to reach ideals to keep both teams happy is a really important part of the, pro a part, important part of the process as well. Um, and also, no means no. If I sort of um, explain why I don't want to build something, if a designer was to say, look, Harry, we, we want to keep this in the code base. You are not allowed to cut this out. This is an important requirement for x, y, z. If they really tell me no, then you know, I, will, I will concede. I will, I will build something. I will put forward my arguments. Um, but I have no more right to a decision than they do. So if they say no, I will, I will respect that. A lot of the discussions I have with designers, or in my work as a whole, seems to really center around cheesy one-liners. 
and this is one of them. Um, I actually wrote this in an article, I think a couple of years ago, and I can't remember which article it was, and people still quote this. Um, a PhD is a clue and not a contract. Now, what I mean by this is something I mentioned previously. At some point, when we decided who had what job, it was kind of decided that it was okay that because a designer gives you a PSD, that's how the site has to look. Uh, and I'm really not comfortable with that. Um, so there's no guarantee that what goes into a Photoshop document, uh, there's no guarantee that that's what I will build, and I don't think there should be for anyone. Um, it seems like PSDs are treated as gospel, like something that has to happen, and I think that's really unwise, because it's far too early to, to agree to anything at that stage. Like I mentioned, you can't get a feel for performance uh, from a PSD. It's naive and, and problematic to decide to underpin your entire project as early as Photoshop. There are so many more variables, so many more things that are subject to change. If you have to work in PSDs, that's fine, but just it's important to understand that you know, it's not a contract. You can't be bound to that. Things will change. Um, what a PSD will do is give me an idea of the design. It'll tell me the rough sort of uh, the feel the page will have. It'll tell me what kind of brand treatments we're using, the general layout. It'll give me an idea of the tone that the design will set. Uh, Andy Clark refers to this as the design atmosphere, and I think this is a really, really nice phrase. It's kind of how the design feels. Uh, the PSD may be really complete, and it may have lots in it, but it, it, it most, it should just give an idea of how the design should look. Um, I don't think we should be bound to write. Another thing I always find myself saying is, um, it's doable, but you know, we probably shouldn't. It's doable, but you must understand that it won't work in this browser. Um, pretty much anything is buildable. We're all talented developers, and we can build pretty much anything that gets put in front of us. I'm, I'm fairly certain of that. But it doesn't mean that we should do. Just because we could do something, it doesn't always mean that we should or that it's a good idea. Uh, I used to be terrible for this. Um, you only get a design that's absolutely mental. Um, you might get probably a print designer. And you look at this design, and it's crazy. I used to get really proud that I could build that. And I used to write tons and tons of CSS. I'd have a style sheet this long to build one header. And I'd sit back and think I'd done a really good job. I've made this, this web page look just like a design. How good am I? And it wasn't for a long, long time, an embarrassingly long time, I realized that that's a really bad idea. It's so sort of naive, and it doesn't, it doesn't show that you're thinking about the bigger picture. Um, so it all boils down to just because you can doesn't mean you should. And you might be surprised to learn that I got this phrase from Jurassic Park. Um, if you grab that bit.ly URL um, from the slides later on, there's a really, really nice scene in Jurassic Park where they're discussing um, just because we can bring dinosaurs back, does it mean we should? And, and in their case, it turned out to be quite a bad idea. But it's a really important way of looking at things. Uh, they got really carried away with the idea that they could bring dinosaurs back, that no one really stopped to think, should we? And it's the same with the work we do. Just because we can build something, you know, it might result in hacky CSS, it might result in a fragile layout, it might result in all sorts of things, it might result in um, you know, diminished performance. We can build something, but is it right for the code base? Uh, a thing I tell designers quite a lot is, there is no point having a really nice, beautiful user interface, there's no point having a beautifully designed site if the user has to wait 20 seconds to look at it. Um, it is a complete waste of effort. If you're going to design something really beautiful, but users disappear before they can get to see it, there's no point in it being there in the first place. Um, there's no denying that users really, really love nice design. Um, they engage more with it. Studies show that um, nicely designed things are typically easier to use. Um, nice user interfaces are incredibly important. 
But studies also tell us that people on the internet, users, are really, really sort of impatient. They don't like waiting for anything. Um, you've seen the studies yourselves. You know, we know that performance is key. There's no point having a really nice retina, crisp, fancy, over-the-top design, because users will disappear after a few seconds anyway. They'll never even get to see it. Um, one shift I've tried to make in my work, and certainly that's starting to, uh, to take effect, is moving to performance first. Um, there are things like mobile first and content first, which are really, really good schools of thought. But uh, performance first will benefit anyone and everyone. Um, it doesn't matter if you're on a nice, shiny iMac with a, a fiber connection, or you're on a, um, you know, a tablet on a train. Everyone benefits from performance first. And, um, it's really cool. I'm really proud of the design team at Sky because uh, I have them coming up to me saying things like, oh, Harry, um, we've designed this, and I was thinking, if we get rid of this and this, we can save two requests. And it's really cool that for a company that still has a very slow-moving process, we can get design teams to think performance first. I'm really proud of that, and it, it shows in our products. Um, there are things that are worth sacrificing for, for the, greater, the greater good, if you will. Um, dropping two things from a UI to make an entire experience faster is a massive benefit for everyone involved. Um, part of the way I go about this is something that I completely made up. There is no metrics in this. It's something I use as like a conversation starter. The 80-20 rule. This loosely states that if we can build 80% of, de of a design using just 20% of the code, that's the option we should always take. If we take some really, really simple numbers, we might have a UI component, and it might take 100 lines of CSS to build it perfectly. To make it look exactly like the PSD, it takes 100 lines of CSS. If we could build something that looks 80% like the PSD, something that looks really similar, something that's almost there, if we can achieve 80% of that design with 20 lines of CSS, we should obviously take that option. That's obviously the better route to, uh, to take. We can trim the code base down massively just by getting, a few of, uh, getting rid of a few potentially superfluous design treatments. Uh, and this is the whole thing about me saying no to designers, and it's often hard for, it's a tough pill for them to swallow. To say to someone who's done a lot of fantastic work for potentially weeks that, yeah, we're going to get rid of this, this, and this because I want to write less code, it does sound quite selfish from my point of view. And this is where you need to open up those discussions and collaborate and, and compromise. This is something that I often get told to me. Um, and I get told this by one guy in particular. Um, my, my boss is a fantastic designer, real nice guy called uh, Robert Farnell. Uh, he's a very clever guy. I've known him for years. Um, so he feels like he's allowed to take the piss out of me a bit, and he, he does. He takes advantage of that fact. So he'll say to me, well, I thought you were good at this. Are you not up to the challenge? You know, I, I've designed this. I could probably code this up. You know, I thought you were supposed to be our CSS guy. Can, why can't you build this? And it is just to kind of poke the hornet's nest and try and, try and uh, get something out of me. But it's a really interesting thing to be told. Um, he's trying to use reverse psychology to make me sort of show off. And well, yeah, fine, I will build it then, just to prove that I can. Um, but it's a really interesting thing to hear, because it does often make me look like a bad developer. If you've got a guy who's just a traditional creative designer, and they can code something that you're refusing to build, uh, it makes you look potentially not very good at your job. But this is the problem that I think we've got as an industry as a whole. Um, we're not here to replicate PSDs. We're not here to just type, uh, to tap keys. Our jobs as front-end developers are far more than just building things. Um, the fact that we call ourselves developers at all is, is probably just uh, a formality. We're actually problem solvers who happen to use development to solve them. Um, there's so much more to building a front-end than replicating a PSD. 
Um, you'd never sort of judge a, um, a builder's worth on his ability to just lay bricks next to each other. That's a, that's a daft metric. That doesn't show you how good a builder is. You would measure a builder's abilities uh, on, on whether he can create a, a big structure that might be around for decades or hundreds of years. You'd never measure his abilities on placing bricks next to each other. So why are we sort of judged on our ability to put pixels next to each other? There's a much bigger picture we need to look at. Like I mentioned before, performance, the health of the code base, how well the team can work together on it, uh, how well it will scale. There's so much to our job than replicating PSDs, and a lot of people don't see that, and I worry that could be a problem on our side. Perhaps we don't get across to the right people what we actually need to do. It goes back to these discussions. Uh, a lot of designers have told me that I don't feel like my developer is educating me enough. Uh, so it's not necessarily the designer's fault. Perhaps they don't know what they're doing wrong. Uh, and maybe that's because we're not telling them in a polite or constructive manner. Uh, one thing I've learned, uh, particularly in the last three years when I've started focusing more on architecture and, and bigger sites, the better, you get as a, the better you get as a developer, the less development work you actually want to do. Um, I found this massively. I've, I've kind of learned this from my engineering friends, uh, people far cleverer than I am. Um, the resentment of, of writing new code. When you think about the code base, you want to keep that small. You might enjoy typing or writing code, um, but that's not your job anymore. Your job is to look after a code base. Um, so the better you get at writing code, and I've certainly found this myself, um, I resent having to write more of it. I particularly resent certain things that I could have potentially avoided. Um, whenever I build something that's similar to something else, I really resent the fact that I couldn't recycle that. I hate building anything bespoke. I hate adding anything to a code base that I know won't get reused again. Uh, this is bound to happen. This is, this is inevitable. You can't avoid this. Um, you'll only have one page header on your site. You'll only have one page footer, for example. So there will be bespoke code in your code base. But I always resent having to add anything to that. I, I know that it will happen, but I'd never enjoy it. I try and recycle everything. I often get accused of uh, premature abstraction, which is something I'll cover in a, a few slides. Um, but it's just it's born of this, like, I hate refactoring code. So I build everything to be recyclable from the beginning. Uh, two easy ways to go about doing this are normalization and abstraction. Um, these are borrowed from some uh, sort of computer science and computer theory. Normalization would typically deal with um, uh, potentially um, databases, you know, cutting down repetition in, in a data set. And abstraction uh, is a way of grabbing these normalizations in, uh, or certainly in front ends that I'm about to cover. Um, abstraction is about sort of tying these things up to be reusable. Uh, normalization is about spotting repetition, or certainly how I apply it to uh, front end dev. So normalization is about spotting repetition. But more importantly, it's about spotting the potential for repetition. It's all right seeing something repeated, but the more things you can make repeatable, the more you can reuse and recycle. So if we take a really timid example, here we've got three uh, content blocks in a page, a header, footer, and content area. These have all got really similar padding values. Um, I'm not sure why the designer picked these values, um, but they're all so close that I wonder, would a user ever spot the difference? Would a user ever know that one's two pixels bigger or smaller than the other? Uh, I would guess the answer to that would be no. So we need to normalize that. We've spotted potential for repetition, so let's make it repeated. And this is a start. This is a really good start. And this is a very timid example. Um, there could be 10 different types of button that are really similar. Can we distill that down to three types of button? And it's this kind of thing that we probably do every day anyway. Um, we're probably already doing this, but it's a really important way and a really good way of keeping code bases tiny. 
this is all well and good. The next step we have to do is abstract these things out, wrap these things up, uh, make them reusable. It's all well and good spotting the repetition, but if you can't make that work for you time and time again, it's kind of a bit lost. It's kind of a wasted exercise. So we have to go a step further. Abstracting things can, uh, can decouple them as well. So the fact that that 20 pixels was applied to three content areas, how can we make that have nothing to do with content areas? How can we abstract that right out to be dropped anywhere? Uh, well, the first thing we could do is something like this. Um, this is shared. We've, we've spotted the normalization. We've shared it, but it's still not abstracted. If we wanted to use this 20 pixels again, we could add another selector to the list and, and keep growing that. But this is our code base growing, and it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a potential for stopping, repeating, and writing things. So the first thing we could do is grab a preprocessor. Uh, my example is use SAS. Store that in a variable. Our preprocessors, their entire point is to help us spot and use abstractions. And the simplest sort of a first step would be dropping this into a variable. We can go on then to use abstracted classes, and we can store these abstractions there. So the class box doesn't lend itself to any type of content whatsoever. Uh, so we can drop this in our market wherever we want. We're not adding anything more to our code base from a CSS point of view, uh, so that code base is staying tiny. Um, if you don't want to use um, markup in your classes, uh, classes in your markup, um, we could use the, the silent class that we made and use extends. Again, this is in SAS. So these are ways of sort of spotting repetition and wrapping it up into an abstraction and using this stuff over and over again for free. So we looked at a PSD and we changed it. We normalized that design. And this is a really, really timid example. There are tons more things, tons more uh, potential uh, areas that you can apply this. This is just taking the design, making some sort of code-led decisions to change it wrapping it up and making the code base better. Um, so yeah, premature abstraction then. Um, this is, there's a kind of rule of thumb, and I think it goes something like, um, you shouldn't abstract anything until you've used it three times, something like that, um, which is kind of a, it's, it's a good rule of thumb, and I can totally understand why people say it. There's no point investing time in uh, inventing an abstraction up front if something potentially never gets reused at all. Um, but at, at Sky, we often have half a sprint dedicated to refactoring. And as I mentioned before, I hate refactoring CSS. Refactoring CSS is probably the worst job that a developer could have. So to avoid doing that while everyone else is refactoring their Nerd or their Python or whatever they're working on, I kind of just twiddle my thumbs and, and get on with something cool because I've, sort of, I've been prepared. I refer to it as prepared abstraction. I already built everything to be reused anyway, so I don't tend to have this awful, awkward uh, refactoring job. Um, so more, more discussion stuff I have with designers then. Um, again, this is something I kind of made up. This is more of a metaphor than a, than a rule or a fact. Um, when we talk about CSS, we talk about rule sets. We're going to implement a design using CSS. We're going to implement a design using rule sets. So CSS is a rule-based language. It's a rule-based syntax. So I sort of say to designers, look, I can build this, but it has to adhere to rules because the code that will implement it has to uh, adhere to rules itself. It's a difficult thing to try and tell a designer that they have to distill their creative thoughts into rules and numbers. And again, it's all about the collaboration. It's about the discussion. Um, but convincing a designer to start thinking in rules can really benefit a code base, and it can, it can benefit the quality of the code base. Um, another thing I say after this is that, well, if we're going to have a good, consistent user interface, a user interface that someone needs to be comfortable enough to spend hours of their lives on, it should be consistent anyway. And, and consistent things are based around rules. Um, if you imagine Facebook, they must have um, tons and tons of different brand and, and UI rules that they stick to. Because if you're going to spend sort of 
an hour a day on that website, you don't want inconsistency. You don't want anything to look wrong. Uh, you want the user to feel comfortable and to be able to trust that interface. And this is all about basing things on rules. Um, and ideally, you shouldn't break any of these rules. Um, never say never. Rules will get broken. But avoid it as much as you can. Uh, someone asked me in a workshop that I gave on, on Wednesday, um, what if a client wants to change the look of a button just because? And the client has every right to ask that. There's no reason they can't ask that. And it is just changing one button, so it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But it's not about that one button. It's about the precedent that that change sets. You allow someone to break a rule, they'll break another one. And all of a sudden, there is no rule left whatsoever. Um, I, I drew this diagram, again, for Rob, my, my boss. Um, we were discussing the concept of sort of sticking to rules in design. He's the lead designer at Sky, um, so he's a very creative guy. Um, and I was trying to explain to him why I don't like breaking rules and why I think it's bad. Uh, we were discussing any given component. It wasn't one in particular. And you'll notice the, the horizontal line that flies straight out. Uh, I actually took this photo after the meeting because I thought I could use it for this talk, so that's why it doesn't look very nice. Um, but that horizontal line that flies straight out, that is the, the lifespan of a component if we never change it. Um, it's a happy little lifespan. Uh, nothing changes, nothing goes wrong. It starts, it continues to exist, and nothing changes. But then we start to add these forks. So we might have a component that needs to have a different background color on a different page. That's a fork in the code. That's a different uh, variation that we have to maintain. Uh, we might have an error state where you know, we might have a fork. This component could be a form element uh, which has an error state, which means it has to be read. This is a fork in the code. This is a, break, uh, a breaking of the rule. Now, we have naming conventions like BEM that allow us to deal with this. Um, but rule changes aren't good, and they will happen. But every single fork in that code means that if we change one of them, how will it affect the other? Um, these forks are more like commitments. We've put something into the code base that deviates from a rule. We have to remember to check every other instance that sort of branched from it. We have to go right back up the tree and see that our change to this button hasn't inadvertently affected this button down here. So it's no longer about the button. It's about the button and the change's effect on the code base and the precedent it sets. One of my favorite rules uh, that I stick to is something that you can decide right at the beginning of any project. Um, I call this um, sort of a, the base spacing unit. This is something I came up with quite a while ago. I wrote an article about this. Um, but whenever you start a new project, you will typically make these two decisions right near the beginning. Uh, you'll decide your base font size and your base line height. It won't be true of every project, but I mean, you have to have some base font size and you have to have some base line height. Um, hopefully, you'd write it a little more like this. Um, but for the sake of the demonstration, I'm going to use pixels. They're easier to understand. Um, I wrote an article about sizing UIs uh, quite a while ago, which deals with why we might write it like this. Um, so yeah, we've, we've picked these two numbers. We've said we want a base font size of 16 pixels and a base line height of 24. We can steal this number. This number suddenly becomes very significant. We can underpin our entire user interface um, from knowing this number. Uh, it becomes our base spacing unit. So our line height is 24 pixels. Every paragraph will have 24 pixels between each line. Um, so so we, we, we used a code like this. We'd usually see something uh, like this, which doesn't initially look too bad. Um, but this, this type of CSS terrifies me. Uh, why 38 pixels? That number is so specific that I don't change it. That is such a specific, intentional number that I need to know why that exists. Because I don't know why it exists, and I won't trust it, 
I won't, I won't change it. So any modifications I want to make, I will add a new class under this, which, which kind of breaks that rule. And these are the forks in the code. Uh, this, is, this is not very sane CSS. It looks fairly innocuous. It looks fairly harmless. Um, but it, it's about setting precedence. As soon as you start using unusual numbers, you have to explain where they come from so that the next person knows why, why or why they shouldn't touch them. Um, so what I do is this. I just start right at the beginning of the project. I blitz all the margins from every block level element and replace it with a margin bottom of our base spacing unit. This means that every sort of gap in our UI has its, ex its explainable. Uh, and we can undo this. We can take that margin off if we need to. Um, this is a really good starting point that we can, it's hardly any code whatsoever. It's a real slim way of sorting out your entire site's spacing strategy. And we can recycle this 24 pixels. Again, this is a rule that I put in to rationalize a design uh, to give me a better quality code base. So we've spotted um, problems, we've rationalized, uh, we've normalized, and now the code base is getting better. Uh, and we can use that 24 pixels wherever we want. And again, we could hide this in a, a variable uh, in SAS. Um, the island object is something I made up just to box things off. And uh, we want a small island, so we use an islet. This is just an abstract, abstract class. Um, so we halve that 24 pixels. Uh, we can see where 12 came from. Um, this is all very sort of watered down examples. Um, but this leads on to the next thing, UI sizing scales. So the thing that I've started to implement, I haven't had a chance to write anything up on this either. I've been wanting to write an article on this for quite some time. Um, so we can do things like this. We've got a component called foo, and that's just one times. So that's itself. Um, if we want to spin off variations, we can have this naming convention which does that. Uh, any tiny version of any component will quarter its size. Any large variation will double its size. So it doesn't matter what the component is. We should know that if we peg on these modifiers, we will get a different sized version of it. Um, so for example, um, we could, you know, our margin bottom, we can change that. So if our margin bottom was 24 pixels, but we need to nudge something up much tighter, we can spin off a variation based on a rule that we chose way, way back at the beginning. And these are all things that, that do sort of reduce designs to numbers and rules. And like I said, it's a hard discussion to have with designers. It doesn't always go right. It doesn't always work. They don't always, like, um, they don't always allow it, if you like, which is totally understandable. But if you can stick to things like this, you're rationalizing your designs and making everything really um, explicit and obvious. And we can apply this to buttons. Uh, buttons is probably the best example. Um, you want to spin off size variations. They're all based around this number that you chose way back at the beginning. Uh, another really good um, sort of area of rationalizing CSS is typography. So you'll often see things like this. Um, again, why are these numbers so similar yet different? Do they really need to be? We can rationalize these. We can make them all 16. There are no reasons why we should have one pixel difference in font sizes, because the user probably won't notice it. And it'll just confuse developers. Um, so typography is um, a really interesting part of CSS. We've got eight different font sizes out of the box already. We've got headings one to six. So we've got six sizes of heading. Uh, we've got body copy, which is whatever we put on the HTML element. And then we've got small print. We've got the small element. So we've already got eight different font sizes. Do we really need to add to that? Do we need to spin off slightly different font sizes? And usually not. Most UI elements will fall into any of the above categories. And if they don't, then it's a rule that you'll have to break and a modification, a fork in the code um, that you might have to live with. For example, you might have a big call to action, and that may need a much bigger font size. But if that rule breakage, if that variant is justifiable, and if you can discuss that, then that's something you go and do. 
but um, it's all about cutting back the unnecessary bits. Um, so yeah, um, HTML element should catch everything, and you should just spin variations off. H1 to 6 already free of charge. Your small element, it's kind of already in there. Um, Nicole Sullivan came up with this, which is a really good way of combining font sizes across headings. You've probably most of, most of you will have seen this by now. Um, you could have a H6 that looks like a H1. We've trimmed the code base down massively, but we still give ourselves this flexibility to cross things over. Um, so I'm going to have to blitz through some real-life examples now. Um, some of the things I've done at Sky, um, I've sort of screenshot and sort of I'm going to discuss. Um, so this was a thing we built for mobileskybet.com. Now, I'm, I'm really worried you won't be able to see it quite right here, but I've, I've isolated it in the next slide. Uh, we can see we've got this grid of sort of uh, nine icons, and between each sort of row and column, we've got this border. Um, the designers wanted it to be like this. You can see how um, they go from sort of gray or go from dark to fade out to nothing. Um, now, that's a very trivial, simple-looking UI treatment. How would you build that? Um, you can't just use normal CSS borders because you only get solid, dotted, dashed. Um, so you could use some pseudo-elements. Pseudo um, you could use border image, perhaps. Um, but all these seem unnecessarily over the top. They all seem a bit much to create such a trivial UI treatment. So what I did was this. I cheated. Um, I applied a fade to the background container. Um, that's one block of CSS gradient syntax. And now I can use solid borders on the, on the list items that contain the, the icons. So now we've kind of changed the design, and we're using Illusion to create something that looks pretty much the same, but is far nicer on the code base. So instead of having to think about CSS gradients on the borders or using pseudo elements, I can just use border solid and fade that solid out to the edge of the background container. So if we take another look, these lines don't fade out at all. It's actually the dark blue background that does the fading. So it's a simple bit of trickery to, to alter uh, and use Illusion that can cut down on your code base. So like I said, we can tweak the design and use Illusion. Spot clever little tricks that you can, um, you can make sort of tweaks to the code base and still get almost the exact same design. It's the 80-20 rule. Uh, another example which I've tried to isolate, um, we had this nav, and it, again, it's the, same, it's the same thing. We had this gradiated uh, border between them, and again, a trivial, simple-looking UI treatment. There's no reason we couldn't build that. But when you ask how you're going to build it, you know, could we use masks and CSS gradients again? Um, let's skip forward another one. Um, yeah, we could use a background image, extra request. That's no good. We could base 64 that image. But why would you want to use kilobytes of base 64 code for a tiny, tiny image like that? Um, you know, c uh, gradients and pseudo elements feels a bit nasty. It feels way too much. So uh, why don't we just change the design? So instead of using illusion this time, I just changed it completely. And I said, well, why don't we just have different dividers between the nav items? Um, so now we're using this effect of uh, two solid borders that sort of join and give the idea of a bevel effect. So we've completely changed it. Well, not completely. This is kind of the point. We've changed one aspect of the design. It's 80% like the original, but we only need to use two lines of CSS to achieve it. We don't have to worry about images or CSS gradients or pseudo elements. We've kind of cheated and taken the easy, ro uh, the easy road. Uh, one thing I sort of advise other devs on my team is if it seems too difficult to build something that looks simple, perhaps don't bother building it at all. Uh, I had a, develop, a developer come up to me, and um, he'd been given a PSD that looked, on the face of it, relatively simple. 
when it actually came to building it, there were loads of questions around um, sort of uh, well, it was, I won't go into too much detail, but it looked like a really tricky thing to build. Uh, visually, the designer and the client didn't think much of it, but when it comes to implementation, you realize that this is far too much effort to build something that looks so simple. So if, you've ever, if, if you ever find yourself in that situation, I'd advise just perhaps not building it at all. Look for alternative solutions. Work with your designers to explain why you think it's bad to implement, and see if you can bounce ideas back to come up with something far better, far better for the code base. Like I said, we're not putting PSDs in front of users. Um, developers don't sit down and work with PSDs all day. Um, designers largely don't work with PSDs all day. They, uh, they get in front of users and they solve problems. Uh, PSDs are just one tiny part of the toolkit that the entire uh, team of engineers and developers and designers use. So there's no reason we can't push back on that. There's no reason why we can't have discussions to modify designs to make the code base better, the product better. Um, usually we're all aiming towards building a good product. We don't aim to build or come up with good designs. We aim to come up with well-designed products. It's all about thinking about the bigger picture. Uh, like I said, take the easy road. Uh, I did. I sort of decided that I'm not going to spend two days building some weird hacky stuff to make a nav. Why don't I just spend 20 seconds on it and build something similar? Uh, keep everything really, really stupid. I've got no problems at all saying I'm a very stupid and lazy developer. And I think developers should be. Uh, complexity and showing off is, is a bad thing. Complexity in code makes it opaque. It makes it hard to understand. It makes people who inherit your code think that you're a bad developer. Keep everything as simple as possible. Uh, starting to wrap up now then. So the example I just showed you, this uh, mobile skybet.com, it's the most paired back design it's the most rationalized and brutally deconstructed design that we ever worked on. Uh, me and a guy called um, Stuart Powell, he's one of our senior designers, uh, we were sort of the front-end duo on this build. And, uh, and we did some really great work together. He allowed me to sort of say no to things. He allowed me to push back on decisions. He started thinking with a developer's mind. Uh, and we did some fantastic work on this product. Um, the company's really proud of it. So we've done the business proud. We're proud of the work that we've done. Um, but users love it. That's the best thing. We've put a product in front of users that looks fantastic, but it's so fast. It's so fast. We've got a team of performance engineers at Sky, and they work mainly on the tech stack, on really, really confusing stuff that I don't even dare try and get involved with. Um, so it's my job. It falls largely on me and the design team to take the front-end performance uh, role. And we did such good work on this, and a lot of it is from just getting rid of unnecessary, superfluous treatments, uh, design decisions that you could live without. And users can't wait to tell us how fast this product is. And I really like that. I'm really proud of that. And I know that the rest of the team are. Uh, so to try and wrap up, we don't deliver designs. That's just one tiny part of our process. Uh, we deliver designed products. We deliver websites. We work with code bases. We put code bases in front of users. If we were to put print designs in front of them, then yeah, that's fine. The PSD does need to be perfect. But because we don't put print designs in front of them, because we don't work with static visuals, we need to stop thinking like that. We need to think about the better, um, of bettering the quality of the product. Uh, make compromises and have discussions. This isn't something you can do on your own. This isn't something that you should do alone. You need to get the team to buy in. You need to get the team to understand why you think differently to them. Uh, it's all about managing relationships. Um, stick to as many rules as you can. If you can manage to distill something down into a rule, um, the movement towards component systems, like the bootstrap-style component um, libraries, 
this move towards those is, is setting rules anyway, and that's a really good shift for the web as a whole. But we need to make sure we're sticking to them. And finally, just be clever and cheat. I showed you two really, really simple, timid examples of where I just completely cheated and, and changed the design to just make the code base a little nicer. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's about being crafty, it's about using illusion, and it's about cutting the fat, it's trimming the fat to keep your code base manageable and lean and maintainable. Uh, and that's me wrapping up. Thank you very much. That was great, Harry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, ask a few questions. Mm -hmm. It was a, a lot of great conversation. Um, and uh, some of the threads that, that people were inquiring about is, um, like, what are the what are your tips for um, convincing stakeholders to accept differences between what the website looks like and what the PSD was? Uh, I get asked this quite a lot. I got asked it in the workshop on Wednesday. Uh, one thing I think is really important to speak to each stakeholder in a way that they will understand. If you're speaking to the business, talk about money. You know, we want the design to look like this. And I would say, well, you can have that. There's no reason you can't have that. But just understand that it might take us twice as long to maintain, which means you're spending twice as much money on this. Is this feature really worth double the budget? Um, so that's how I deal with clients and business. Um, an analogy I used actually in the workshop was, um, you know when you go to a, a, a restaurant and you ask for a steak and you ask for it well done, and the waiter says, well, you know, we don't think you should do that. And then a good waiter would say, well, don't spend 50 euro on the fillet, maybe spend 20 on the, the rump. And that's advising the, the customer. If that waiter told me to get out, you know, like, I'm not having that, that is, that is a bad decision. I'm paying their bills, I still have to sort of, they have to keep me happy. And it's the same with uh, clients. Advise them as much as you can, but if they really, really do say no and they want to stick to something, you kind of have to just deal with that. And is, it, and is the situation where, like, I mean, I think a lot of people are just concerned that, that they would get into a situation where they deliver something and at the end of it, the client's like, whoa, 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 whoa this, this is different. Um, is, the only, is the way to avoid that just setting the expectations up front that they should expect something that is not the same? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so what we do at Sky, which is easy because um, when you work product, the clients are sat next to you. So you can discuss that in a far more iterative way. Uh, when I used to work agency side, um, I'd get involved, I'd go to client meetings. I think a lot of the problem is uh, front-end developers perhaps never even get to meet the client. So I'd make sure that I was in there and saying to them, look, we're designing this in Photoshop, but I just want you to know that We'll try and do the best we can, but things may change. And if they ask me, you know, why might it change? We'll just say, look, we've not done this before. We've not built this design before. Anything could happen. Uh, it is all about managing people. Uh, it's not easy. Um, but it's, 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 this is what I go back to as well. Our jobs are far much more than tapping keys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I guess along with managing people, uh, a client is probably... Us as developers, we have concerns about, uh, like, like we want to feel good about what we're developing. And, and that's what a, a lot of this is. And, and building something that is scalable and, and uh, the code feels solid and healthy gives us a great feeling of satisfaction. The client usually doesn't care that much about those feelings. Like, they want it to look good and feel good. So, like, how do you balance the two of those, which is, like, I, as a developer, 
want to build this in a perfect way. They just want something that you know meets their needs, looks good, feels good, and to be honest, they could be happy if the code was spaghetti and terrible. One thing I, one thing I say a lot of the time is um, the, the, the client shouldn't care about code anyway, uh, unless they come with specific requirements, like it has to be hosted on their stack. Um, I don't think the client should ever be told about code, because they don't care whether you've used too many IDs and classes. They, they shouldn't care. Um, I think you should do the best work you can. Uh, and if you need to change the design to make, to make your work better, that's when I'd sort of say, well, look, I, I wouldn't tell the client about the code. I'd talk about the financial impact of that code. If we're going to build this, it's going to be a ropey mess. And it's going to cost you twice as much to maintain. Um, let us do a better job for you. We won't, you don't need to know how and why. Um, yeah, I always link things back to. I talk to designers about how the user would feel using a fast site. I talk to the business and clients about how much money it will cost them to maintain a bad site. So it means that developers can get on and do our thing. Um, it all links back to talking to people in, in the language they understand. Yeah. Uh, lastly, uh, you showed a lot of kind of techniques and rules. Um, what sort of uh, it's I'm basically wondering, for a lot of people who kind of don't have this exact same experience but want to basically gain from what you've gone through, what sort of processes or tools could they use um, at the start of a project to basically solve some of the projects that, that you showed? Um, also, like, are there tools to help identify, at least in the case of CSS, like, that you could do a refactor to pull out like common common colors, to basically do an audit where you could make something a little bit more maintainable that way? Yeah, this is a question I get quite a lot. Um, unfortunately, I never used any tools to get there myself. It's just taken time. I think the simplest thing you can do is have a slight shift in mindset. So stop seeing yourself as a developer and see yourself as someone who has to solve problems using development. So don't think about you know, using tools to spot things. Use a real common sense approach. A thing I mention a lot is a the way in which you build a house is very similar to how you'd build a website. You, know, you need to do things in a certain order. You need to get your foundations laid um, and build on top of like, stronger foundations. So right at the beginning, you need to be looking for any potential gotchas and you know, looking at the far bigger picture. Rather than looking at a PSD and thinking, how can I build that? Think about It's all about the thought process for me. Uh, tools aren't something I particularly use. Uh, I think Nicholas Gallagher tweeted something I can't remember when he tweeted it, but I only saw the tweet recently, and it said something along the lines of, um, instead of asking, can I build this, ask, can I maintain this for two years without going insane? Uh, and those are the questions you need to ask. Um, don't look at something with today in mind. Look at it with next year in mind. For me, it's all about a shift in, in thought processes and, and managing people and expectations. Great. OK. Well, thanks very much, Harry. This is awesome. Uh, thank you.